I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description. Had you Mormon hills and the dear land of Crimin, I bid you farewell. I'm bound off for Greenland, I'm ready to sail in hope to find riches in hunting the whale. Farewell to my comrades For a while we must part And likewise the dear lads Who first won my heart The cold coast of Greenland My love will not chill And the longer my absence more loving she'll feel. Hello, I'm Ramona Ali and welcome for the last of this season to That Podcast, an audio storytelling project for our time that sees writers, comedians, musicians, scientists, journalists and everyday people from all walks of life tell us tales of the extraordinary and the everyday to make sense of the world we live in. In today's episode... That podcast, where we say goodbye to those we have lost and talk about grief and healing, we're going to hear about death and loss and about saying goodbye. What I really want to tell you is that it is going to be okay. But we both know that I am an awful liar. You might dig up bones, clean them again, wash them, wrap them differently, perhaps even dance with them and then bury them again. And it's a nice way of remembering that death isn't a one-off event. I've always hated dogs. I just don't really get it. A bit like flavoured water or Ricky Gervais. I just don't get what the fuss is all about. Something told me to research Nigerian funerals. Oh my God, it was an eye-opener. It's like a fashion parade for some people. I wear my dog collar more for comedy than I do in ministry. If you see me in my dog collar, it means I'm either doing a funeral or a gig. COVID did not alter being able to mark my mom's life or her death. It didn't take that away from us. I just had to do it a different way. 
saying goodbye is something I've experienced from a tender age. It wasn't the loss of a human being so much as two little white mice, my first and only pets. My older brother named them Perseus and Andromeda as the Hollywood blockbuster Clash of the Titans was all the rage at the time. But my squeaky ancient Greek namesakes played out their own tragedy. Percy killed Andy, then followed her to Elysium soon after. Little did I know of aggressive behaviour in mice, but they were gone. And my four-year-old heart was broken for the very first time. I felt the cracks beneath my ribcage throughout my life. Losing my father after a long struggle with cancer in 2009 and losing my baby niece a few years ago. I was fortunate, privileged even, to be able to hold them both at the end. I was also grateful for the solace given by those who rushed to my family's side. Lucky that my grief found a home in the touch of their hand. Lucky that my tears could fall in the warmth of their presence. Grief in the pandemic has taken on a new personality, And it's one that has made itself a little too well known. In the last 12 months or so, the reality is that death is a much greater part of our lives than ever before. Over the year, many of us have watched with hearts sunk low as the COVID death toll climbed high. We've paid tribute to the first NHS doctors and nurses from Asian, black and ethnic minority backgrounds who died in the line of service. Some of us have joined the online vigils for George Floyd, Sarah Everard, or read obituaries of heroes like Chadwick Boseman and Captain Tom. Publicly and privately, these days, we are all more acquainted with loss. The experience of grief has the potential to feel deeply isolating, and never more so than this last year when families and communities have been prevented from coming together in mourning. But in this podcast, we want to show you, in our own small way, that you are not alone. That as isolated as we've been from each other, there has grown instead a broader sense of collective loss and a recognition of each other's grief. We're going to steer you through an audio odyssey across the country and via the globe to meet people who will share their personal journeys through grief. And we're going to look into the future and ask... How can we possibly deal with all the unresolved hurt and confusion that 2020 and 2021 have caused? How can we glean our own meaning from this time of crisis? It's no easy task, but thankfully, I've got some formidable guides at hand. We'll be hearing from spiritual leaders, comedians, novelists, poets, anthropologists, musicians and to everyday people who've shared their stories with us from these hashtag unprecedented times. So let's come together one last time on this podcast to get our heads and hearts around loss and importantly to find healing in the hurt. So let's begin with Act One where we say goodbye. So a nine-night is traditional in Jamaican culture. It's like a pre-wake. It sees family and friends getting together nine days after your loved one has passed. It's a time to have prayers, to reminisce, to eat and drink and really reflect on the life of the person that you've lost in preparation for the funeral. My dad was a DJ and a promoter. He was one of the most loving and giving guys out there. 
Losing dad and doing that in a pandemic, it was one of the hardest things I've ever faced, especially with the isolation that the pandemic brought. Going from a culture where you're used to seeing your family on a daily basis and nine nights are essential when it comes to the mourning process. So all of that was really up in the air and it made a disconnect with the grief. So it was coming up to the nine days since my dad had passed and a lot of the DJs that he was friends with in his network, his siblings, me, it was hard to think of what we could do. The idea came from everybody collectively and it was let's make use of technology and try and do a virtual nine-night. Now we have DJs galore that loved and respected my dad. We had his sound system that he played with. We wanted to be able to connect as many people as possible because we had family calling from France, from Spain, from Jamaica, from St. Lucia, from everywhere. It took us a couple of days to put together a timetable of DJs that wanted to play and send tributes to my dad. We had some prayers going on from some pastors. We had memories and tributes coming in from family and friends. We had artwork designed and it was a huge event. And it was streamed across Facebook Live, YouTube Live, Zoom and FM. It was absolutely insane. And the thousands of comments and love that was coming in from my dad was so comforting. It had over 90,900 views in total. And that's only across Facebook. It had over 8,000 comments. It had over 5,000 likes. I've got a little sister who is only 10. She's called Jemiah. And I know that it's something that we'll be able to save forever. We've got those videos. We've got all of those comments that she can truly look back on when she gets older. And it's really crazy. Funerals online, nine nights online. It's the world we're living in. I'm glad we're able to use technology in new ways. But it really is bittersweet because it makes you think about, you know, what you've kind of lost out on. Something I think about a lot when it comes to any big life event is ritual. Whether we are marking moments of joy or sadness, rituals bring people together in a shared experience of processing emotion. They are our markers, our gateways, our crutch to hold ourselves up when we need to make sense of life's most significant changes. And in the case of death... They can transform grief from something that we go through alone into something we go through as a community. But last year, we've had to reinvent our rituals to adapt to the pandemic. Writer and comedian Jack Rook, who wrote the successful and incredibly touching show Good Grief about losing his father when he was a teenager, has a knack for talking with intelligence and humour about mourning in his work. But the world has shifted for him the way it has for all of us, and he's had to reevaluate what it all means to him in the context of a global pandemic. So here's Jack Rook with how to make up for the shitty livestream funerals of those who did and didn't die from COVID. My friend Katie's friend's girlfriend went to go to the funeral of her old school teacher from the comfort of her own bed. It just so happened that morning that Vodafone were conducting a fortnight-long planned maintenance period on their network coverage. So, as my friend Katie's friend's girlfriend logged on, she saw no webpage was loading, let alone a live stream. 
She tried her phone, but no, even tethering the 4G from her data plan onto her laptop didn't work. She couldn't pop to Costa and pinch the free cloud Wi-Fi because, well, they were closed. She couldn't nip round the neighbours because, well, it's lockdown and also they're racists. So instead, my friend Katie's friend's girlfriend sat in her bed, twitching her thumbs, whilst a small group of 18 mourners in a chapel 80 miles down the road sang All Things Bright and Beautiful. Katie's friend's girlfriend knew this because she spent the whole 25 minutes of what should have been the funeral staring at the emailed PDF of the Order of Service, sat with her own thoughts. Katie told me this story last year and I shook my head and laughed. What a fucked up world we're all living in, I quipped. Thank God it was just her old school teacher and not her mum. It turned out that her old school teacher was the one who'd helped Katie's friend's girlfriend beat her eating disorder. This teacher had identified something was wrong and supported her all throughout college, kept in touch during uni via emails and Skype calls, sent flowers when she'd graduated. And now she'd died of a COVID-related illness and fuck all people could say goodbye. Or perhaps more importantly, thank you. The pandemic has completely disrupted our rituals and normal coping mechanisms attached to death, dying, illness and grief. It's wiped bucket lists for terminal cancer patients. It's ruined final family barbecues. It's tipped the very notion of having a shoulder to cry on, on its head, as that shoulder must now have a two metre government imposed distance on it. Saying goodbye or thank you through a funeral or a wake is crucial to the grieving process. I know this, I lost my dad at 15, I lost a close friend to suicide at 21, and I lost a pair of Nike Air Max 95s on the Northern Line, Bank Branch, age 26. And trust me, I had to have a funeral for them all. But that feeling of closure is really important, psychologically and spiritually. And I often wonder just how big the scale of what we've lost this past year is. What mourners have lost. What the people who've died have lost. What the people who didn't even die of Covid have lost. I met my sister-in-law, Michelle, in 2017. We immediately warmed to each other. She's funny, loves getting pissed, especially on mid-range supermarket Prosecco. She's quite glam, but not in a showy-offy way. She's got two sons, two Cocker Spaniel dogs, and unlike my brother's previous partner, she's not a homophobe, which is always a benefit. And then in April 2018, Michelle got diagnosed with a rare sarcoma cancer, a tumour in her leg. The cancer was soon terminal by December 2018. The final 20 months of her life were spent in and out of UCLH Hospital on Tottenham Court Road. Chemotherapy, radiotherapy, psychotherapy, trips to Pret-a-Manger, trying out the whole extensive menu of coffees and salads, oncologist consultations, medication pickups, waiting hours for a single poxy prescription. But those months were also planning a wedding getting married to my brother, escaping to the seaside on little retreats and being a newlywed for a year. The first lockdown came in effect on their one-year anniversary and as her treatment then got delayed, rescheduled, rebooked, cancelled, etc. She was also losing her battle. 
So about 10 weeks into lockdown, we broke it. May 2020, I don't know what the ethics are of mentioning this, but we had a lovely picnic in my mum's back garden. I had isolated for weeks, not even popping to the shops, having all our food delivered and then spending hours anti-back wiping down bananas and tubes of Pringles. And I just wanted to hug Michelle. I wanted to sit with her and bitch about Eamon and Ruth on this morning, how he's always a bit of a pig to her. And I just couldn't bear the two metre distance any longer. It didn't seem fair on her or on us. And I didn't even care what fair meant any longer. The whole situation wasn't fair. By July, the sarcoma tumour on her leg had grown so big she couldn't walk. She had her leg amputated. By August, she was so ill it was too risky for me to see her in case of COVID transmission. And in the autumn of 2020, she finally passed away. I couldn't say goodbye on the day because only a maximum of six guests were allowed in her hospice room. I was the seventh, waiting in the outdoor memorial gardens, memorialising someone I wasn't allowed to say farewell to. Only once she was gone was I allowed to sneak in and kiss her goodbye. Whilst Michelle didn't die of COVID, she, like tens of thousands of other terminally ill people, did lose out because of it. Because difficult choices were made to protect others. But she still bore the brunt of them. And whilst I am all up for measures to save others, I still feel like I'm allowed to be angry at them. I still feel like I'm allowed to be pissed off that our government let our country's response be so weak that I couldn't even kiss someone goodbye who I'd spent the last few years watching display nothing but true strength. Her funeral followed the next month, only 15 mourners allowed, no wake in the pub after, no clinking bottles of Prosecco in memory over a crowded bar, no animated dancing around bar stalls trying to celebrate a woman who'd spent two years fighting for life. Instead, just messages, phone calls, testimonials from people who watched it live on the web. That one bit on the live stream, which went a bit fuzzy. Watching 15 people's backs, sat in mourning. Afterwards, all I felt left with was the feeling of, is that it? After all that pain and all those rounds of treatment, all that heartache watching someone fight, is that it? I've always hated dogs. I just don't really get it. A bit like Flavoured Water or Ricky Gervais. I just don't get what the fuss is all about. Michelle's two dogs are Cocker Spaniels. One boy, Rufus. One girl, Saffron. I always thought they were real Tory names, even though Michelle was very much not one. Whenever she'd bring the dogs round, I felt a sense of, don't bring your life mistakes round my house, please. Obviously, I wasn't nasty to them. I'm not a monster. I just felt it an inconvenience, having two rather large living objects running around my feet and death staring at me any time I was holding food. Michelle would tell me to show some love to them, infantilising them with cutesy tones of voice and calling them good boy, good girl. I rolled my eyes in snobbery. And when Michelle went into the hospice for the final time, I had to rush back home to look after them. 
and as I turned the key in the front door and they came galloping towards me, I suddenly felt nothing but love. It was that instant, the strangest switch in my feelings that I've ever experienced. After she died, the dogs and my brother came to stay with me and my mum, and within days, I was taking them for walks, getting to know their personalities and neuroses, how Rufus has despicably bad breath, how Saffron likes to lay on her back, legs wide open, and demand someone tickle her, which, let's face it, we can all relate. How they both just love to shit. They shit all the time. They shit everywhere. And somehow, I'm now totally fine with it. If anything, I feel an odd sense of joy picking up their shit. Like it's something Michelle would be proud of me for. What are you doing? Mum, he's eating the post. <laughs> he's eating your sky bill. <gasps> Rufus! Give my letter back. I often chat to these two in the middle of the night. Sat at 3am as if I'm chatting to her over WhatsApp. It feels like I'm keeping in touch. In a way, caring for them has become my grieving ritual. Spooning Rufus, letting saffron claw at my face, feeling tails whipping my ever-growing calves each time I take some food out the fridge. I know that when Covid is over, I want to have a huge wake for Michelle in the garden. I want to feel able to go through our old WhatsApp messages and not find they floor me. I want to walk past UCLH Hospital on Tottenham Court Road and not want to burst into tears. I still want to plan stuff that pay tribute to her strength and her kindness, even though I don't know when we can do them. My brother, he's currently training to walk 150 miles over a week in May along the canals of the UK to raise awareness and funding for sarcoma cancer charities. My friend, Katie's friend's girlfriend, has left her Vodafone internet package and is doing an open university course on teaching. And I hope that any of us, having lost someone to COVID or not, can still find ways to undertake new rituals and can still plan for futures with celebrations of those we've lost to come. And I hope most of all, we will all one day be able to steal the free Wi-Fi from Costa. That was Jack Rook. I hope he, Rufus and Saffron are currently enjoying a lovely walk in the sunshine and that the poop bags still bring joy. And I, like him, am so looking forward to just sitting in a crummy little costa for hours, cradling the cheapest drink available and rinsing their free Wi-Fi. It is kind of funny, isn't it? The things we miss. But really, if we're looking for some answers on death, grief and the afterlife... There's an obvious place to start, right? Surely this is in the spiritual wheelhouse of, like, the church, the mosque, the temple and the synagogue. So, as part of this quest to make sense of the loss around us, I thought I'd talk to a man who has a rather fascinating understanding of how ritual and grief interact. Vicar by day, comedian by night, former punk rocker and a man with the best possible name. It's Ravi Holy. I'm Ravi Holy. I'm vicar of Wye, which is a village in Kent. I've been in Wye for 11 years, ordained for 15 years, 
And then about seven years ago, I started doing stand-up comedy as well. My act is all about being a vicar and you know things that happen to me as a vicar and stuff. I love how you're a vicar by day, but you cast off your dog collar to be a comedian by night. But I don't cast off my dog collar. Oh, I you keep don't? my dog yeah. collar I mean, on. No, no, no. Speaking. <laughs> in fact, I wear my dog collar more for comedy than I do in ministry. I don't walk around the village wearing my dog collar. I mean, most of the time I'm just in jeans and a T-shirt or whatever. If you see me in my dog collar, it means I'm either doing a funeral or a gig. So you kind of have two congregations, don't you, in a way? I mean, there's this overlapping of your religious calling and your comedy. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, in one sense, I'm doing very different things. Uh, I mean, when I'm out doing comedy, I'm simply trying to make people laugh. But equally... It is a form of ministry because I'm standing in front of people that probably have no contact with the church otherwise. And even though I'm not setting out to have conversations about faith with them, I often do. People often come up to me after gigs and start saying, are you really a vicar? And then want to talk to me about their questions about faith. I mean, one of the most bizarre incidents that ever happened at a gig was there was an act who was on who was actually a porn star in <laughs> his his main job who was trying his hand at comedy and me and him were then chatting in the bar afterwards and you know ended up with me praying for him wow you know, not not praying for him because he was a porn star i mean that's his business but praying for him because of a personal situation that he asked me to pray for him for which is extraordinary. That is amazing. I mean, they, they often don't believe I am actually a vicar, even though I'm <laughs> wearing the uniform. Like a prop. And of course, I've got a silly name because Ravioli doesn't sound like a real name, does it? Yeah, I, I did think that. I was like, it's a great name. Absolutely brilliant name. <laughs> Back in the day, I was in a punk band called God's Government. And I don't know how much you know about the punk scene, but there was this tradition of names with adjectives in, like Johnny Rotten, Sid Vicious. Or bad pun names. So there was a female punk singer called Polly Styrene. So <laughs> Ravi Holy was a punk name in that tradition, but with a Christian twist, because I was already a Christian at that time. And it got to the point where nobody knew what my original name was, so I, it was just easier to change it legally. And then not long after I changed it, the band split up. I started training for full-time ministry at a Pentecostal Bible college. Uh, and then just one day I was at a party, someone said to me, so who are you? What do you do? I said, my name's Ravioli. I'm training to be a pastor, which was the first time I really got that joke. Little realising that 20 years later I would become a comedian. And that's my opening joke. <laughs> great. But what has it been like to be a vicar in 2021 and 2020 and how has your congregation been holding up there's a really good community feeling in our village generally not just in the church i mean when lockdown first happened there was a whole army of volunteers that were checking in on neighbors doing shopping for people ringing people. i mean it was really good it was fantastic that is so beautiful i love how people have been coming together in these uh, times yeah, no, that's, that's what lifts you um and in regards to funerals and to their rituals, I mean, what was the original intention behind the Christian funeral rites and, and how do they sit in a modern context? It's something that I have both quite strong views on and possibly a different view to other Christian ministers. I mean, the, the funeral service in its original design is really about preparing a sinner to meet their God and be judged. 
So there's a lot about forgiveness of sins and, and, and stuff. But the way funerals are actually done in the Church of England now has been very influenced by effectively the humanist way of doing funerals, where it's more about the person. Most funerals now, really, it's about the person's family and friends coming together and remembering that person, telling stories about them, paying tribute to them, and then saying goodbye to them, with God and faith being the context in which that's done, but not the focus of it. Obviously, over the course of the pandemic, it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been straightforward. And do you think that the meaning or the emphasis on funerals and rituals they've changed they've uh, been damaged over the past year in some ways they've become more more poignant obviously i've done quite a few funerals in the last year including a few covid funerals you know one of the last funerals i did it was someone who sadly i'd actually married him and his wife only five years ago oh, you know, he, he died young and he was a hugely popular guy in the village. So the church would have been absolutely full. There would have been 300 people in the building if you know it was normal yeah, times. Under normal and, circumstances. Yeah. And we were limited to 30. We broadcast a service via our Facebook group so that people could still feel involved. And we've got the possibility of doing a kind of memorial service for him at some point when all this is over. Although, you see, I wonder whether, I think for some people, it's actually been a blessed relief that they don't have to have the all singing, all dancing service with 300 people. Do you think there'll be that unprocessed grief, though, for a lot of people, that they haven't been able to fully embrace their grieving? When I'm conducting a funeral, regardless of whether there's 30 people there or 300, I try and create a service that enables people to release emotion, to actually have a good cry, express their grief. And then that's a process that's going to go on over the next few months, years. So I think that someone would be able to grieve just as effectively if there were only 30 people at their loved one's funeral than if there were 300. I don't think that would make any difference to their mm. grieving mm. process. Yeah. And, and for you personally, obviously, you've had to undertake a lot of funerals. What, what is the most meaningful or even the most cathartic moment for you during a funeral? the heart of the service is of people talking about this person that's gone and how much they meant to them it's really important and i i think it is sacred i i think one of the problems with british funerals is that because of the proverbial stiff upper lip people are trying to hold it together for some bizarre reason and in a sense i think the whole point of a funeral is to help people open you crack the husk of their grief and start to let the feelings out. So uh, one of the ways I try to help people doing that is by having a point in the service where we just sit and listen to a piece of emotive music that has probably memories of the person that just, and obviously music reaches the parts that nothing else can. So hopefully just helps people to start feeling what they're actually feeling, expressing it, releasing it, and, and, and thereby beginning the grieving process. Yeah, beyond the loss of loved ones grief has a much broader meaning like mm. there's loss of time with our family our communities our yeah. loss of like milestone events like graduations and weddings you know even like the loss of opportunity of of romance budding or building dreams mm. how do you think we'll have to reckon with all of that unresolved grief 
the whole nation is grieving, well, probably the whole world is grieving about what we've been through. And I think when that came home really powerfully to me was we'd all been looking forward to Christmas. You know, that was going to be the glimmer of hope in this sort of bleak year. And when we were told basically a week before Christmas that it wasn't happening, that was just so devastating. It was. And uh, so, again, okay, we have to move our service online. So I actually went into our church building to get some stuff to use for the Sunday morning service from home on Christmas Eve. Now, Christmas Eve in a normal year in our church, we have 500 people at our main service. You know, the place just crammed with families, with kids. It's the most joyful service of the year. I mean, it's just absolutely wonderful. And I walked in at about the time I would normally have been doing that service and I just burst into tears because it just hit me of, wow, this is not happening. It's just unthinkable, you know, Christmas being cancelled, just awful. It's heartbreaking. It really was. How will you and the church mark that moment when we come through this pandemic finally and we can meet in person again we have talked about that in our church and i think we want to do a really big event you know the bells ringing with choirs with a massive meal with sounds wonderful i mean do a a jubilee type event and also when it comes to healing of scars what role do you think comedy can play in healing well of course comedy is one of the best medicines one of the most cathartic things that there is. I mean, again, I can remember when a friend of mine was killed in a car crash about 30 years ago and a whole bunch of us just got together and sat and listened to a comedy album. And, you know, there's, I mean, laughter is, is about the most cleansing thing that you can do. So grief and comedy, mm. they're actually a very good combination. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com not i nor ravi can offer any one-size-fits-all solutions but what i can do is share with you people's journeys and the ways they found to say goodbye. So here with a personal reflection is Michael Rosen, the extraordinary children's author and TV presenter and much-loved former children's laureate, in his own words. (laughs) 
We can say goodbye to those we lose in any way we want. We can choose how and when and where. Some of us like the way our religion helps us through these times. Some of us like to invent our own ways to do it. My son died and we slowly worked out how we wanted to deal with the feelings we had now that he was gone. How we wanted to celebrate his life. How we wanted to go on and on remembering him at the anniversaries of his death and his birthdays. At first, we didn't want to let him go and we did that old-fashioned thing of bringing him back to the house. Visitors came by to say goodbye to him. They sat in the kitchen and talked and I found this chat, the tears and the laughs, carried me forwards to a safer place. We had what I call a good funeral with stories and music and even a bit of football commentary. Another time, it felt right to walk through a cemetery and be part of how others have remembered their loved ones. We've lit candles, had meals, shared memories and dreams, and we got a stone for him and inscribed it with our personal message. His ashes are beneath it. So far, I haven't been back to see the stone, but I know it's there and often think about it, sitting there under the trees. One day, I will go and see it and... I'll know that we put our thoughts and feelings into finding the right place, the right stone and the right message. We found our way to do it and that feels both personal and right for us. I wouldn't dream of telling anyone else what to do or what to feel personal and right for them. I just hope they do find that and I hope that they can find some peace with the way the person they care so much about is not with them anymore. That was Michael Rosen. If you want more of his work and you're looking for more reading on the subject of this episode, I highly recommend Michael Rosen's sad book, a deeply personal, beautiful and heartbreakingly honest piece of writing about losing his son, illustrated by the inimitable Quentin Blake. And you may also be interested to read Michael's most recent book, Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story of Life, Death and the NHS, in which through poems, notes and emails, Michael gives an intimate account of his hospitalisation with COVID-19 last year and the long road to recovery which he's been travelling since. My father went to see his family in Pakistan from here, probably last February or March, I can't remember exactly when. And because of Corona, he couldn't make it back, uh, travel restrictions, etc. So we we generally had normal conversation, as you would every other day type of thing. And then all of a sudden, I hear from relatives who live in other parts of the world that my dad wasn't well. So then I rang him and I said, listen, can you just please go to the hospital? And then half an hour, 40 minutes later, I got a phone call. Well, I got a few missed calls first. A few times I picked it up, no voice on the other end. Um, and then I was told that he was no longer alive. It's encouraged religiously and sort of culturally, it's encouraged to bury them as quickly as possible. Some even do it within an hour or two. One of his cousins rang me and said, that, look, he's now died, we did our best, what do you want us to do? Somehow we managed to book flights seven hours later. And then I rang my dad's cousin back and said, we're on our way, we're going to do it tomorrow then obviously we needed documentation to book flights on an emergency. 
and then he went back to the hospital, got doctors, death verification certificates, and etc. Luckily, we made it. We got on that flight that day. But then what happened was that we got delayed. We had to make an emergency landing in Budapest because somebody on our flight had died on the flight. And so, yeah, we were already stressed out, loads happening. At that point, even my dad's funeral wasn't important because somebody else had died on the flight. Luckily, we got there on time. And the Islamic ritual is that you bathe the body and then you lower the body yourself into the grave. So all this happened so quickly. Didn't have time to think or anything. Every decision was being made instinctively. I got really busy, whether that was trying to arrange catering for guests, whether that was trying to arrange the legalities of the death, um, kept me busy, kept me away from people, and that was probably the best way I dealt with it. But then there comes a time when all that finishes, and then it's just you. Might be three months later. That's the hard part. But I think we've always had this sort of identity culture clash when it comes to losing someone because your culture or your religion wants to do it certain ways and then the world who's interpreted your culture and your religion wants to do it another way and then you're just stuck in the middle and you just got to nod along. But if it was up to you, you'd do it totally differently. Every culture, every faith, every community has its own traditions around commemorating the dead. I've always been drawn towards and honoured to be part of many religious communities and interfaith initiatives. As a Muslim myself, what struck me about mourning in my own faith is how important it is to share in the grief. I've seen how the janaza, the ritual Muslim funeral prayer, is performed not only by the family and friends of the person who've passed, but by strangers too. It's normal practice to pray for those you don't know, side by side with the deceased's own kin. I wanted to dive a little deeper into grief, ritual and the effects of the pandemic on Muslim communities, so I reached out to my friend and bearded hero, Abdurrahman Malik. Abdurrahman is one of those people who never lets the grass grow under his feet. He's always busy just casually being an award-winning journalist, a lecturer at Yale Divinity School and a cultural organiser for faith-based youth communities. Something that we had in common this year was the loss of a shining community figure and beloved friend and mentor to Abdurrahman, Fuad Nahdi. Fuad Nahdi was a prominent journalist and activist whose voice, as his guardian obituary pointed out, was heard from Downing Street to Dakar. My name is Abdurrahman Malik, and I work at the intersection of faith, culture, and social justice. These days, I'm here in New Haven, Connecticut, and I have the privilege of, of teaching at the Yale Divinity School. At the same time, I'm working with the New Haven Public School System on developing cultural literacy programs for a growing new immigrant population, largely Syrian, Afghan refugees who have come to the state and to the community over the last four or five years. Um, and I also direct something called the Muslim Leadership Lab, which is a, a space for self-identified Muslims to grow their confidence, understand their context and gain some skills to actualize their, what I feel is like their prophetic potential for service and, and leadership. You've got so many strings to your bow. What would you say is at the heart of all of it? I've thought a lot about what are the things that drive me, you know, connect to like 
Dr. Martin Luther King's ideas of the beloved community. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's like MLK was mad. How do you build the beloved community in a world that's so fractured? And then you realize, no, if you don't have the aspiration for the beloved community, the compassionate community, the merciful community, the community where the least of us are as cared for as the most privileged of us, if that isn't our aspiration, then what's the aspiration? And, you know, it's not about getting there. I think it's about knowing that each and every one of us are doing something nudging the needle, putting something into the world that is going to be a little little Lego block yeah. on the road to building that beloved community. That's beautiful. And, you know, having seen over this past summer, not just the pandemic, but also the expansion of the Black Lives Matter movement, not only in the United States, but seeing it in the United Kingdom and seeing it as a global force and a global recognition of the systemic anti-Black racism and systemic racial injustice and seeing the way people responded to it was incredibly hopeful. But it was also a wake-up call, wasn't it? I think the questions that I'm left with is what I am engaged in doing, nudging the needle towards a more just and compassionate society. Life is too short to be complacent. And if anything, the pandemic has taught us is that life is incredibly short and that life is incredibly fleeting and that life is a gift. People who are giants in our lives, people who are pillars in our lives are here one day and then they're gone the next. And I know that you have experienced that personally through the loss of a pillar. <laughs> pillar not just to you but to so many people to so many communities and I just wanted to talk to you about that. That shelter in place lockdown period was marked by the passing of my dear friend, mentor, older brother, in some ways a father to me amongst many fathers that I've been privileged to have. Um, Fouad Mahdi's death was really you know, it, it'll mark my life. When it came to his funeral, there would have been thousands of people attending the funeral, but instead we were faced with a live stream where there was only a handful of people there. And I was watching it and I just, I felt that uh, weight on my heart while I was watching it. And I was just wondering how it, for someone who was so close to him, how would that have felt for you? Those days were, were really uh, difficult. And um, in our tradition, as you know, Ramona, presence is really important. We bury quickly because we want to gather people in that moment of grief, right? To hold one another up and to hold the person who is beginning their journey back to their eternal home up through their prayers, with their hands. We feel the dirt in our hands as we put it in the grave, right? We say the prayers and we, we hear them hit the bare earth, you know, six feet under. We stay after the grave is covered and we kneel next to it and we address the soul of the person who has passed. All of these things are part of our tradition and we don't do them alone. We do them together. And those who are privileged to get a chance to wash the body of the person who has passed, to literally lay their hands on them, to cover their skin with perfume so that they're ready to meet the angels. And it was a real challenge. 
And, you know, we were privileged to have that live stream because in the end, I think over 8,000 people tuned in to watch the funeral. I haven't really talked about this before, except with people very close, but I will share it with you, Ramona, that on the way to the uh, cemetery, our friend who was coordinating the funeral called me from the hearse in which Fouad was laid to rest. It was very sweet of her. And she said that I know of, of the many people who would want to be here, you would want to be here so much. And she asked if I wanted a few moments. And she put the phone next to Fouad's casket and she left it on. And I was able to say prayers, but I was also able to talk to him. I was able to uh, express those things that I would have wanted to express to him. And then we, um, at home, we were following the funeral. And when the time came to say the funeral prayer, we, we also said the funeral prayer together as a family. We lit incense of Bukhur, the, the scented wood that Fuad had gifted us. So the whole house was smelling of incense. and It was really beautiful. And whenever we smell that incense, it reminds us of him. Over the last few years, I have had the opportunity to be intimately involved in the funeral rituals of people who are very close. My uncle passed away in Liverpool. Um, I was involved with washing his body and preparing it for the funeral. My friend of almost 25 years passed away of cancer. And I had the privilege of being with him when he passed, along with so many friends and, and beloveds and, and his beautiful family. So, you know, in a way, over the last few years, I've had that intimate relationship with the processes of death and mourning, of really holding someone physically after they have passed and to prepare them for that journey. And, you know, I think for some, that's really unnerving and can be really difficult. Of course, not only is that understandable, that is normal. But I found that within our spiritual tradition, these rites and these rituals are really about giving us a sense of meaning through these times, right? Everything that we do from the washing and the preparing and the shrouding and the prayers, they have two purposes, don't they? One purpose, of course, is to help and guide the soul of the one who has departed into the eternal life. But so much of it is about our own healing, and the pandemic hasn't allowed us to do that. Yeah. So in a way, we've had to create our own sort of new rituals. And part of that has been watching the Google Sheets files going around with, with you know, sign up for which part of the Quran that you're going to read um, in <laughs> honor of, of this yeah. person. So in normal circumstances, it would be everyone gathering together in the house of the person who's passed away and everyone reads a part of the Quran. And so you complete it together. So now obviously everyone's doing it via, as you say, like Google Sheets. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is there's no more new norm normal. If anything the pandemic has taught us is there was never a normal, whether that's, you know, climate catastrophe or whether that is political breakdown or whether that is the fault lines of racial injustice or gender injustice or people being marginalized or economic injustice. I mean, where do we start, right? Yes. So these unsettled times, these extraordinary times, have called and are calling us to new ways of connection. And I don't think the Zoom khatam of the Quran will ever go away now. Because in a way, we've also recognized that we have the tools for connection. 
in a way that we didn't even a year, a year and a half ago. Yeah, exactly. Our rituals will also shift. Yeah. And we will find that our repertoire of rituals is going to grow. Once we are through this, there's a lot of unresolved grief that we still have to reconcile. Is that the next pandemic? Is that the pandemic that we can't see that's already happening? Yeah, the invisible pandemic. You know, those challenges of disconnection, of feeling marginalized and alone, did not begin with the pandemic. We've been living with kind of a catastrophic eruption of loneliness for a long time. We see that building. As a person of such strong faith, the role of faith, how will it play out in our healing of the scars and the wounds and some of the open wounds that are going to be left on us after this very difficult pandemic? I think the moment that we're living in now, we need to see our faiths not as silos, not as boundary lines that demarcate other and us. But I think we need to see faith as part of the repository of human wisdom, that these are wisdom traditions that have to be accessed. As my friend Mark Gonzalez says, these traditions contain empathy technologies in which we develop our senses of compassion and justice and mercy. What does it mean to be faithful? For some of us, it means ritual and it means practice. For others, it means connection to humanity and to the living, breathing stuff. It's us trying to understand why our lives are meaningful. And you don't have to have a confessional faith to access that because it's part of human wisdom. Take from it. Nourish yourself from it. It occurs to me that there's another big spiritual player that we haven't explicitly talked about, but it's in every fibre of this episode. Art. It's a broad church that accepts people from all faiths and none. I'm always grateful in times of grief for art. Music, poetry, paintings, prose, they can help say the unsayable. So in the spirit of trying to grapple with the impossible in search of catharsis, here with her lyrical reflections on the process of grief is someone who I fangirl on, Manira Pilgrim, with The Pauper and the Poet. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. One. Somewhere between the prophet and the pauper, the poet pours the contents of that limb with many mansions in. That limb with the capacity to be broken thousands of times and come back around just as brave. Like the hands of a clock or a moth to the flame or my brothers to the streets and their mothers to their flowery graves, blooming in cliches and sentimentality. Hopeless romantic, a sucker for a story, seeking any excuse to speak glory into the tales of the overlooked and the underheard, or the underclass and the really urged to bask in all their golden, all their luminous light bouncing from each other, perforating through the pores of their skin. Instead of beads of sweat, I can see balls of guilt dripping from them. Maybe these are the emerald rose in the streets paved with gold so many were in search of. Two. Scrabbling. Unearthing the surface in search of words to make sense of the emotions that mock us. Seeking the moments that are in between that indicate that life may be more than loss and longing. It's just that when we've lost, we long to be with that love of our life. 
But isn't that what love is? The willingness to put our whole in their hands, knowing as fragile as we are, they may falter and we may fall. Like bricks, like Lauren, like leaves, like tears down cheeks, like Genoa Achebe or the album by the roots. We may hit the ground and shatter into a million tiny, shiny pieces. Gather them as we must. We will never be the same. The point of impact will forever leave a stain. Three, a stench that will follow us. Foul at first, unable to outrun it, but we would try. Breathless as we are, heaped on the floor, when legs won't carry us no more. All cried out, head hurts, face hot. All that's left to do is to close our eyes and let the night swoon us. Lullabies descend and cradle us to womb. Four. That sweet feeling when we awake. Before our memory has time to remember the night before. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. We made it. As broken as we are. As holy as we are, as hard as it is, disjointed, expanded, new-skinned, we made it. While it's not possible, even though we'd love to, in a single podcast, to cover the rituals from every faith and belief, whether you're an agnostic, a humanist or a Jedi there is one more conversation with a spiritual leader I want to share with you. I spoke to senior rabbi Alexandra Wright, who has some beautiful insights into why it is we need to come together, however we can, in joint ritual to get through this bastard of a year. Whether you're a religious person or not, I think there are ideas here we can all share in. I actually grew up at the synagogue where I'm now the senior rabbi the liberal Jewish synagogue in St. John's Wood in London. And of course, when I was growing up, there were no women rabbis. But when I was at university, I think I must have been in my second year, I was introduced to Rabbi Julia Neuberger, who was to become a second woman rabbi in the UK following Jackie Tabak. And I remember a little light bulb switching on in my head. And about four years later, I began the process of training to become a progressive rabbi. And broadly speaking, how has the last year, 2020, 2021, affected your synagogue and your congregation? Well, like all other synagogues and organisations, we've had to put absolutely everything online, our services, our learning programme, and we've had to really find new ways to reach out to the congregation and to keep in touch with them. In the beginning, we recruited about 120 new volunteers from within the community, and we telephoned every single person in our community. We introduced a year ago our own COBRA committee, a bit like the government, which we called Nechushtan, which was the Hebrew equivalent of COBRA. 
And we, we're constantly trying to think of ways in which we can reach out to our communities. And obviously there has been a lot of loss um, for the nation, but how has grief and mourning impacted you and your congregation during the pandemic? Yes, this is an immense subject, really. So there's always loss in a community such as ours. But it's true to say in normal times, if I can refer to them as such, this is balanced with births, bar and bat mitzvahs, marriages and other celebrations. So there is a sense that somehow life continues when we can celebrate that wide range of life cycle events. This year, there have been many bereavements, one death after another. And in Jewish life, when someone dies, it's a great mitzvah to attend their funeral, to attend the evening prayers in someone's home. The Hebrew term for a funeral is levaya, which means to accompany the dead. And there's the great mitzvah is to comfort the mourners in person, to go round to their house, to take food, to be with them. As one of my teachers said, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment simply to turn up when somebody dies. But of course, we can't do that. And the funerals I've conducted are very forlorn with 10 people standing around a grave. It's a huge sadness when close relatives or friends are unable to attend or have to watch via live stream or Zoom. And I think the impact of that means that the process of grief and mourning when you're with others is arrested. Life has somehow been on hold for a year and our isolation can trap the outpouring of our feelings. In normal times, you have a framework, a very sound psychological framework, which mirrors the natural process of grief that we go through. When these things happen, the funeral and the shiva, they're accompanied by prayers. And those prayers, lots of verses from the Psalms, place us in the great cycle of nature, a cycle of life and death. So you get phrases in the funeral service. Our days are like grass, we flourish like a flower in the field, but the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. So death in our liturgy is seen as part of nature. And my hope always when I recite them is that they help mourners come to terms slowly with the death of a loved one or begin to come to terms. And of course, we don't all die in a, at a good old age. And there are times when we chafe against this so-called natural order of things. Why do you think ritual is so important? How does it aid the process of grief? Ritual really helps us to mark thresholds, transitional moments in our lives. I think that ritual is somehow a vehicle for change and it holds a process, it holds our emotion. So, for example, when an individual marks the first anniversary of the death of a loved one, they'll normally light a candle on the date that that person died. Perhaps they'll recite a private prayer but importantly, they also come to synagogue on the nearest Shabbat to hear their loved one's name read aloud. And that name is read along with a number of other names. They're in a community where mourners are acknowledged. But also at the same time, there might be a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah on the same day. There might be a baby blessing, other celebrations. 
And so prayer and ritual in their broadest term help us move from, in the context of mourning, from sadness, guilt, grief, depression, perhaps to quiet acceptance, to permission to laugh and smile again. Ritual can help us honour the dead, but it can also help us realise that we don't need to be burdened by our sadness. It gives us permission to move from sadness to gladness. And somehow it can also contain emotion. And I do think we will have to find ways to mark and acknowledge the deaths of those who have died over this past year. Because we haven't only lost family members or members of our congregations. In a sense, as somebody once put it, we've all been bereaved of a year of our life. I'm not sure yet how, but I do think there's a huge task ahead. I think there will be a lot of grieving and healing to do, even when we come through this pandemic. (laughs) And this is a little bit of a funny thing, but somebody's just sent me a photograph of a packet that they received in a box. He sent me the photograph of the box. And on the outside, there was a sticker saying, please do not break down. I just sort of thought that's interesting wording, really, for a box, you know, fragile. Please do not crush, but please do not break down. So do you think that message on that box, do not break down, do you feel like you've been telling yourself that over and over during this pandemic? I think I've been trying to find ways in which I can uh, not think about the pandemic, not think about the news that's been pretty relentless. And was there a particular person or a story that really spoke to you? Actually, something that happened quite recently. One of our younger members, a university student, offered to be one of the volunteers to ring a member of the congregation and see how she and her husband were doing. So way back in April or May, whenever it was, she rang this couple and they were coping all right. And sadly, back in January of this year, the husband caught COVID and very sadly, he died. And our young volunteer was in touch immediately with the widow, who was absolutely distraught. And this young person has been a very solid rock of support to this widow and is planning to become a social worker. So I was very moved both by the fact that this young person was supporting this older woman, but also was thinking and now is going to become a social worker and undergo her training shortly. So in December, I think it was the 19th, I got a phone call from my older brother who lives in Oklahoma, letting me know that he had discovered that my mom and Gerald had not had any spending on their checking account for about five days. And that was a cause of concern for him. So he drove by their home and found that my mom was lying in bed ill and apparently had not had food or water or her medicines for about four days. My stepfather was also ill. So they immediately called for an ambulance. 
she was placed on a COVID ICU ward. My stepfather was also diagnosed with COVID. He was on the same floor as she was placed, but in a different wing. And because of COVID, he could not see her. My mom survived 10 more days, but died on the 29th of December. I could not fly back. I couldn't hold her hand. I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't sit in the hospital cafeteria and eat bad food with my brothers. We'd been grieving mom probably for some years as her dementia increased, but there's still a finality when death does take somebody that's close to you. And not being able to fly back to the U.S. to participate in any of that was, yeah, Anyway, my family decided there wouldn't be a funeral. They would just have mom's body cremated. And there wasn't going to be any kind of memorial service. And I began to think, that's not right. That doesn't sit well with me. I felt like my mother's life needed to be marked somehow. I asked a friend of mine who's a vicar if he would help me run this little Zoom memorial service. And it was beautiful. I chose the scriptures that my husband read. Then I played this song that I'd found. It's called A Death Without a Funeral. And uh, then I read a little, probably 10 minute eulogy about my mom. And I had friends that were from different countries join me. So yeah, COVID altered what we could do. COVID did not alter being able to mark my mom's life or her death. It didn't take that away from us. I just had to do it a different way. That takes us to the end of part one of this podcast. In this half, we've looked at grief from the inside out, from the personal reflections of those affected by it and through the lens of the rituals that help carry us through it. But what about the broader picture? Join us in part two where we'll talk to professionals from the health service who've seen grief from the outside too many times this past year. We'll also hear how young people have faced another type of pandemic, the loss of firsts, like a first kiss or a first freshers week. And we ask an anthropologist to take us on a global journey through historic and cultural death customs, while also thinking about the future to figure out what happens next. See you in part two. Part one of that podcast, where we say goodbye to those we have lost and talk about grief and healing, was hosted by Ramona Ali and featured Reverend Ravi Holy, Abdul Rahman Malik, Rabbi Alexandra Wright, and contributions from members of the public. Farewell to Tarwathi was arranged and performed by Maimuna Memon. How to make up for the shitty live stream funerals of those who did and didn't die from COVID was written and performed by Jack Rook, with sound design by Ben Walker. Reflections on Grief was written and performed by Michael Rosen. The Poet and the Pauper was written and performed by Manira Pilgrim and directed by Richard Twyman. The host script was written by Jennifer Bax and Ramona Ali. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.